Welcome to the DHUB Podcast. I'm Leland Steele. And I'm Moby. And I forever surrender the rights to the most epic intro to the show after that. (laughs) Well, that was a four year long intro. (laughs) (laughs) It was. You know, there's never like enough reminders, it seems nowadays, how fucking old we're getting. It's like, yeah, I remember when we started this podcast last year, (laughs) two years, four years ago. Right. I was still in my 20s when we started. (laughs) I was still old. old man. (laughs) I'm just older now, so, you know, I was doing the, the podcast to hang on to my youth, which has, of course, eluded me. Of course, like everyone else, it slips quickly through your fingers, no matter how tightly you try to grasp upon it. That's right. You know, trying to grab youth is very difficult. Youth? Youth? Where are you, youth? <laughs> yeah, it, <laughs> it goes away. But uh, we're going to touch on that a little bit, actually, in one of the segments, so I don't think that's... That's a bad little teaser there. Um, but how you doing? I am very well. Uh, very well. Happy as always to be recording. Yeah, and uh, listener, a little bit of more of a chill episode than usual here. Um, Leland and I are, are sandwiched kind of in a tough month. Um, you know, Leland has his uh, significant other flying out soon. We both have my brother who's been on the podcast before. His wedding is in less than two weeks now. Very busy for both of us. I just came off a crazy busy a weekend for the family it was all good meeting his his family the future listener <laughs> a whole family of listener <laughs> a whole family i know i'm already handing out business cards basically being like yeah i'm with the podcast it's like <laughs> aren't you his big brother yeah but right. podcast first big brother second <laughs> well i'm glad that meeting went well i uh have did recently pick up a suit uh, I've never owned an actual suit before. I spent far more than I uh, wanted to. Well, I don't know where you go for suits. Um, like, I don't know, Xerxes Special Tailor or something like that. Scrooge McDuck's Tailor. But suits are expensive. I bought one as well. But uh, I don't know. Maybe the fact that I'm not as tall as a skyscraper makes it a little bit less expensive in my case. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm just, I don't care how much it is it fits and it feels good and uh that is more than i can say for a lot of like the fancier dress i mean it's easy to feel comfortable in like sweatpants (laughs) but you know finding finding pants that fit alone are are annoying don't worry buddy the sweatpants wedding that's our trademark that we'll be introducing pretty soon here oh that is perfect (laughs) i think emma would go for that 100 (laughs) percent. that's awesome (laughs) um yeah yeah that's cool i mean that's one of the things i think we did in the last year as well was record with her for the first time um that was that was pretty sweet and yeah we're gonna touch kind of on our our history a little bit i mean we don't want to be too self-gratiating but uh i think it is it gives us an excuse to look back and kind of pull back the whale the the veil of the 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 wizard's whale veil um (laughs) Just kind of show what, what we actually think about this little hobby we put together. So, um, yeah, that's good. And we'll have one other segment about something that's kind of in the uh, video gaming news. Um, but before that, banter section. Leland, do you have anything? Yeah, I got a couple of things. So, for my birthday uh, in July, Marty had gifted me a video game, Hunt Showdown. Oh. And it's like... Crytek's take on a quote-unquote battle royale. It's not really 
your traditional battle royale. Uh, but basically, it's set in like the late 1800s, 1889 or something in Louisiana. And there, you know, it's a fucked up world. There's like zombies and different beasts and things that you're hunting in addition to other players on the server wanting to hunt those same things. So basically, you're racing. If you encounter other players or other teams, you, you there's the player versus player uh, interaction. And then obviously, of course, with the, the general zombies and, and the other types of enemies, the player versus environment aspect so it's a really interesting mix of both and the 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 main selling point for it is uh the the binor binaural bin binaural audio or sound design that the game uses so it it the, the way they've they've coded it and they've created the game is to this every sound in the game to, to mimic exactly like a human ear word you're, you're two human ears so Recommended to play with headphones and stuff, but everything you do in the game makes noise, which can attract the PvE elements and the PvP elements. The maps, um, I think the maps are like one kilometer by one kilometer, so they're square. And from uh, you can hear, depending on the gun, if it's a large caliber, you will be able to hear a gunshot from one end of the map if you're on the opposite end of it. And it's through that noise that you can be attracted to like if other players are shooting out you may be able to get the jump on the winners or that kind of stuff so that's like its main selling point and it does it incredibly incredibly well like it's very cool uh it, i have a lot of trouble tracking the sound myself i don't know if it's like a sensory uh banality that i have or something i it's really difficult for me to to pinpoint location of gunshots but players get really great at it and you, if you utilize it well, you're going to be really, really good at the game because the time period in which it's set, there's like no automatic weapons. You know, you have like single shot rifles and lever action rifles and um, six shooters and that kind of stuff. So the weaponry itself plays into the theme and the motif of it and this, this almost like slower play, but intense, like bouts of intense and, and fast paced action. I don't know. There's something something really kind of really different about it, and it's a strange game to come out of Crytek, who who did the uh, the Crisis series. It's really cool. I'd recommend picking it up. It's it's I it needs more of a uh, it needs a bigger following because it's it, this dropped in early access in February of 2018, so it's like almost four years old uh, somehow. I don't know. It's it's really cool. I think it flew uh, under a lot of radar. I would seriously recommend uh, getting into it if that sounds interesting to any of you at all. One of those early access games that's in early access forever. <laughs> I get it. Yeah, I could see that. I don't know if it's a. I don't know if it officially did has a, have a full release yet, or I don't even know. But it goes on sale constantly. A sale did just okay. end, but it goes on half price like all the time. Okay. Well, I will. Uh, I will bookmark it because I've never actually done a battle royale. And I will make this commitment on the podcast, which means the commitment is punishable by drunk, being drawn and quartered. I will play the hunt. <laughs> you know what? Being drawn and quartered in the Hunt Showdown is pretty fitting. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Um, the first one I want to bring up is a big one. Uh, it's the Matrix 4 trailer has dropped. If you haven't seen it, go to YouTube and type in the Matrix trailer. I'm torn on it. I thought it was a phenomenally well done 
trailer, but you know, my issue with it is that you you know, what new does it bring to the table? Um, it really feels soft rebooty. I think I know where they're going with it. Of course, I can't be sure, but I, I found I'm the kind of guy that digs through this stuff frame by frame, and I found a frame where Neo was being the old Neo, the blind Neo, the dead Neo was being worked on by a bunch of machines. And I think they may resurrect him, toss him back in the Matrix, you know, on blue pills so he forgets who he is, just as a measure of control. Because if Neo is in the Matrix, then another Neo will not spawn. Neo is the remainder of this mathematical error with the Matrix that keeps happening over and over. I think the Matrix is like, you know what, we need some fucking stability here. Like, let's take this Neo who is reasonably good. Like, he actually worked with us for the first time made it so humans could stay in the matrix if they wanted or leave let's just like take this dude and you know give him a penthouse which it looks like he has and have him just on blue pills for the rest of his life gives him stability and i think the story is about neo kind of breaking through that Hmm. so okay so sorry to follow what you're saying this is like we were told in revolutions uh, the newest incarnation of the matrix but instead of having the one come up organically in that new creation they've inserted the one already to control the one before the that one is, is correct presented. that is correct okay that makes a lot of sense as long as you look at the one as not just a person but as a mathematical eventuality of the matrix per the architect you know what his speech at the end of matrix 2 so like they essentially already have the one and so they just resurrect him, reinsert him to get stability back in the Matrix. And I think where things start to fall apart, he misses Trinity. They have a Trinity in there. I don't really know what her story is, but you do see in the trailer code, Matrix code going along her. So that could be Neo looking at her code. But it doesn't make sense that Trinity would be real unless Trinity gets resurrected as well, because Trinity did obviously die. Right. And then is the 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 new actor like a, an analog for Morpheus's role? I don't know what that actor's name is, but uh I I don't know either. I don't want to butcher it cuz it's a very easy name to butcher. Okay, it's been a while since I've seen the entire trilogy of the Matrix. So every Zion falls every time and then things get rebooted. Right. Right. Correct. Now that Zion falling is the robots re-enslaving the remnants of the human race. And then by the matrix, the, 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 the matrix, of course, what this perceived in the battery, the people, the human batteries minds, that simulation gets rebooted. But one of them is still in there is the one. So it is, is it always been Neo in every iteration? So we're all the same or as every, all of the human batteries are the same in every iteration of the Matrix as long as the human battery is not dead, right? I actually don't believe that personally. Like, I don't believe that each Neo is Keanu Reeves, you know, look being resurrected. I mean, and that that's my whole point. That's where I'm going with this, is that instead of a new Neo who would look different, uh, they've got, they've just kept this particular Neo around. They've resurrected him. As far as young Morpheus, that could actually be a strike against me because it does seem like it's clearly meant to be 
Lawrence Fishburne's Morpheus. Like they picked an actor that looks very similar to him. That's actually one of the things I can say thumbs up is that they picked an actor who looks like Lawrence Fishburne. But I don't know. This is just all speculation. The craziest speculation I heard was from Watch Mojo, which I told you, which is that, you know, re- <laughs> like, that Neo actually in the Matrix, when he doesn't know who he is, is actually John Wick. He uses his abilities to be John <laughs> Wick. And that's why he has the beard and long hair from John Wick. Yeah. I mean, if they were to merge those two series, that would be off the hook retconning. That would be like retcon of the century. <laughs> well, is that going to be the twist? Because like you say, uh, I think I had said it in our in our uh, one of our chats here that it feels very much Force Awakens to me, this trailer, yes. right? And the, yes. the direction that the trailer seems to be going. Because again, they've already set up as part of their lore that the Matrix has to get rebooted. So it makes sense that a rebooty movie, right, is 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 the fourth is the fourth film. But then there's going to be something. There has to be something that's different because they're not just going to show us a bunch of the the exact same scenes from the original Matrix, just kind of different. With there's more than just the spin of Neo forgetting that he was the one. Like there has to be more to it, right? Uh, otherwise, I hope so. there, what's the fucking point of making the film? That's my point. I don't think Lana Wachowski would fucking put a film together that is just a, a redo of her greatest hit. Like, like I, I don't. I hope. I, don't I, I hope that's not Lana's, you know, thing. And I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I literally don't know. I mean, my issue is, is that it just, like you said, I, and I thought it was very good. It does seem Force Awakening, just based off the trailer. Your words. So I hope it's not that. Me too, man. Me too. Yeah, that's that's uh, that's my first banter. I don't think we need to extrapolate that particular one more. But uh, what have you got? I have been watching Marvel's What If on Disney Plus. It's their animated, uh, one of the, their newest animated series on their streaming platform that uh, harkens to the What If series of the comics, which literally, I mean, DC does the same thing with their Elseworld comics uh, run, the Elseworld run takes a situation in a particular Marvel universe and says, well, what if this happened instead? So far, I think there's been five episodes. The latest one released as of recording was a, a what if, uh, like a take on Marvel Zombies, which is a, uh, a, a limited series that they did, I think, at least four uh, like runs of, four like limited issues, like six or seven issues, uh, like Marvel Zombies 1 through 4, and then I think there was a Marvel Zombies 0 or something. So at least 5 then. Um, which, uh, I, the original Marvel Zombies is great. It's literally this cosmic infection comes in and starts making people into zombies, and all the superheroes are not immune to them, so they get turned into zombies with their same abilities, and they go around eating, and they have se- some type of sentience, and they just want to eat people. It's pretty dope. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's hard to fuck up. It's really hard to fuck up. Like when you have, you know, Spider-Man eating Mary Jane and Aunt May, like it's pretty good. I like it. <laughs> give it the Oscars. I don't care if comics get Right, exactly. Oscars, give it everything. It but that's I mean, that's not what happened in this in the in the what if Disney Plus series, but I don't want to target a specific episode. I'm just the whole the thing overall sucks. <laughs> it sucks. Both M and I have not been enjoying it. 
Uh, we we have we've watched uh, each episode together. Actually, it's one of the shows that we we get and have a watch party together uh, whenever they release. And I figured it out yesterday that the problem with it is, and I think this may be because uh, uh, maybe my view is tainted because I do like a lot of the what ifs in the comics, and they there just isn't enough time for them to flesh out the consequences of a of a different choice. So it never feels like the plot has come to its full fruition by the end of the 35 minute episode, which of course with Disney, like the last 10 minutes are fucking credits. Like they do with every one of their fucking shows. So that's the reason that I'm not enjoying it. I just feel like everything feels half baked. But then the other thing is all these, what ifs are specifically based off of the MCU, like our, uh, our movie universe, which there's far less to work with. So maybe that's also why I think that's that's a that's a inherent failing with it because while there's a lot of lore to the this the MCU itself there's not enough I think to make these choices interesting. It just feels like because of that many of the choices they make come out of nowhere. Like there's there's one titled what if uh what if Stephen Strange lost his heart instead of his hands. A very misleading title because it depicts what would happen if Rachel McAdams' character in the in Doctor Strange died and instead of him damaging his hands? So it's like this, you know, he lost his heart. Bullshit. So that's stupid. I, I, again, I don't want to hark on specific episodes. The very first one, though, is what if Peggy Carter became Captain America? That's a dope episode. Ooh. That's that's Ooh. sweet. That's cool. Uh, I really like that very first one. It had a great, great opening. Uh, but the other good thing I have to say about it is I assume that... There are uh, this project was one of the very last things that Chadwick Boseman lent his his, uh, his voice to. Yes, he is. Every time there's a Black Panther, it's 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 Chadwick, and it, it's really really nice to hear his voice. It, it I mean I can't believe it's been over a year now since he's passed away. I think the anniversary was a couple weeks ago uh, of his passing. I, I don't know. It just that was just nice. I just it was nice because there's an episode titled what if uh what if um t'challa became star lord so that was a kind of a fun episode and he got to fuck around in that episode so it was good i don't know i liked hearing his voice but that's about the only highlight you've actually inspired me you've had you you've actually inspired me and i'm actually saying this now because i don't have a pen handy as like a note next month we'll do a segment on underrated marvel characters um whether it's in the mcu and, and stuff like that we could maybe extend this to dc if we wanted to but you know, I look at Chadwick Bosman and Black Panther. I think he was a fucking fantastic Black Panther. He's dead yeah. now, so unfortunately the character is on layover for quite a while. And I don't think he still gets the recognition he deserves for Black Panther, for how good he was as a character. Like, he, I guess maybe he came late into the game and there were already so many actors that were nailing their MCU characters, but he was certainly one of them. And... And now he's gone. And we I feel honestly like we were robbed, you know, a few more excellent Black Panther appearances. Yeah, I just it was um pretty tough news when when he when he died. Uh I was legit very, very sad for uh, for a few days there. And I I don't I was surprised that I, I was. I mean it just yeah, it, it hit harder than I expected. 
Well, it was it was a surprise because we weren't able to prepare ourselves. Like he he kept his cancer diagnosis very secret, and suddenly it's like, you know, Chadwick Boseman died. Well, like shit, what? You know, was he murdered? Was it like an accident? It's like, no, he had cancer and just hid it, hid it, and it's almost like more tragic. It's like he didn't want to bring attention on himself or his illness, but unfortunately for fans. I mean, suddenly this guy's just up and gone, and we didn't know what what happened. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I think that's a huge part of it too. It just like was so sudden to the public, like you say. Right, right. Well, my second and final banter is uh, is kind of a fun one, um, and this is another link I I want to put in the show notes. This uh, uh, person, YouTuber and inventor. I know her first name is is Megan. She has developed, I don't have it in front of me. She's developed a mechanism that she made for <laughs> Magic the Gathering. And it's basically to to up the stakes and basically make it like a four-dimensional game. So what you do is you hook electrodes up to yourself. I'm not sure where the electrodes are supposed to go. And she's made a <laughs> box that every time damage is done, you have to tap this button. And there's four buttons, so you can actually do two-headed dragon. It's meant so you can do, like, up to, you know, multiplayer, two aside. And how it works is when you tap the button, you don't get shocked. Tapping the button means you've taken a damage. How it works is it stocks up your odds of getting a shock to 10. So, say, so by the time you tap the button 10 times in a game, you are for sure getting shocked. But it could be on your first tap, very small chance. It could be on your fifth tap, moderate chance. Seventh tap, high chance. Or like 10, you know, 10 damage, very high chance. And so these people are like actually playing. You can see it's like, you know, after they're taking damage. It's connected to like a 9-volt battery. So it's just, it's a really interesting way of playing. And uh, I just found it hilarious. And you can tell like this, you can tell she's just like this crazy inventive person, like extraordinarily loud and boisterous. And um, but I, I just thought it was a pretty creative thing. So I think it's called like the shock box or something like that. But I found it interesting and I figured it was worth bringing up. That's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we don't we don't play enough magic anymore. It's been too long. It has. It has. And there's have you looked into the new set? at all it's um pretty cool so they go, they go back to Innistrad. did you ever buy any Innistrad? that was like the vampire nightmare plane no i didn't no okay so three things quickly number one mill is now they've now simplified place cards into graveyard as mill mill has become the official term for doing that action which i think is useful because place this amount of cards into your graveyard takes up a lot of space in print on the card so now it's simply mill three because that's what everybody calls it anyways number two there's now day night in the game so now you use a token for day night and day night is introduced in innistrad but it will now be introduced in any game where an innistrad day night card is used and so like for example uh, certain werewolves may be more powerful at night uh, certain cards maybe like, you know, if you pay this amount of mana, turn from day to night. It's just a new, interesting kind of overall mechanic they put into the game. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's another new mechanic, which is is interesting. So now creatures have ghosts. 
So a bunch of creatures, when they die and go to the graveyard, you can pay a certain amount to get their ghost version from the graveyard. And the ghost version will look different and have some different skills. It might be more powerful. It might be less. Uh, so that's pretty cool. And um, what's the final change that they did? A moment. Oh, yeah. So now a lot of creatures create zombies, which they always did. But there's an extremely powered down version of the 2-2 zombie token called the decayed zombie token which is almost like a new mechanic in this so there's a lot of weak creatures that'll produce a decayed 2-2 zombie token but they can't block and they're only allowed to attack once and then they need to be sacrificed so they're kind of like candy but they don't really do that much it's kind of like the zombie hmm. horde the shambling horde. that's interesting yeah yeah they're really they're really trying to 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 liven up mtg it seems like even with the their forgotten realms set before they introduced like the the dungeon delving mechanic thing where you literally progress through a, a, a dungeon and every level you hit you get a, a minor reward a, a little boon and if you get to the very end of it then there's a, a much larger and, and more powerful effect to simulate like a dungeon crawl right because it's dungeons and dragons theme forgotten realms yeah they're trying i don't know i don't know if i like it yeah, it uh, it kind of reeks a little bit of desperation. Like it's like we're they're saying the game is stagnant, right? Well, and I I think uh, you know I think the game is still fun. It's still cool, but I think their their main issues are power creep, like excessively brutal power creep, so that people like you and I, with some of our older cards that used to be powerful, really don't hold a candle to the decent cards in the newer sets. Um, you know, and the other issue I'd put out there, which is related to power creep, is just the influence of planeswalkers and how powerful they make a lot of the planeswalkers. It's like, well, you know, you may have a really well-designed deck, but, you know, fuck you, here's Jace the Infinity Universe. And with its five things, you know, I'll, I'll play this plus two opponent sacrifices, exiles all permanents. It's like, well, I can't fight back against that. <laughs> right unless you like play similar similar cards right exactly. i mean like um even just like urza the artificer um mm -hmm. from a few sets but like it's really easy to go infinite with him and have like an artifact deck like it's it's pretty simple <laughs> oh yeah and i i mean people don't like to play against that I, you know it's like what's the point of me shuffling throwing a land down the next turn some place like like some infinite combo because he spent 500 dollars on his deck it's like congrats you win. I'll go home. Right. Yeah. Right. I'll just go home then. Now. <laughs> I, I guess that's like when you you sit down and you have, uh, you you got to know who you're sitting down and play with and what type of game you're, what kind of deck they're bringing to the table, right? Like, I watch a lot of uh, EDH, uh, like commander stuff on on YouTube. It's predominantly what I consume as far as MTG content goes, and uh, I've never played Commander. I don't know if I want to play Commander, but I really love watching Commander be played just because, you, you, I don't know, the, the decks are so varied and I really love legendary creatures to begin with. So like just that your Commander needs to be a legend, that's already draws me in. And, and you, I, I think it gives a chance, a really good chance to see a, how a lot of these combos can very easily get get pulled off i mean yes the format you can only have a single copy of any given card in a hundred card deck which does include your commander in in that hundred so 
but there's a lot of overlap because it's it you can put any there's it's not like standard where you can only you're only limited to do a certain number of of sets right so it just gets so varied and the power the the power levels of those decks can range drastically like if you play competitive EDH it is like going off somehow in a 100 card deck going off on turn 3 and getting the pieces you need because you put so many different copies of so many different pieces with different names they just do similar things which might even support the argument of the game getting stale uh, is I mean, the Christ, they got to be coming all up to 30 years old, this game is, almost. Mm-hmm. I mean, I like what I've seen from Innistrad. I would play it. Like, if I had a friend who was into it, if you told me, you know, Moby, do you want to split a booster box and draft it? You hate drafting. But I would do that if I had a friend like that, um, this Innistrad. It does seem interesting. But, again, my issue is we we like to play Power Creep. You love your dragons wearing glasses, reading books, and, you know, if they can't <laughs> compete anymore, then we're just going to stick with their old cards. Yeah, that's so. exactly it. I don't even remember the last time I purchased a, a brand new card, because, you know, we, the way you and I consume is mostly purchasing, like, singles or sets of four, rather than boosters. Yeah. And Yeah, I don't know. I think a draft would be cool soon. Hey, if you want a draft, man, I'll buy a booster box. That's no problem. We'll uh, we'll draft it up. That'd be interesting to kind of we could do a whole segment on it, just like our thoughts on the new set. And, and, you know, does this bite the bug of magic? Does it feel like having been out of it for a few years, like we're playing a completely different game now? You know, I've got a card I haven't dropped on you yet. I bought this like three years ago. It costs a lot of money to buy both of them. But it's like a freaking angel from one of the other Innistrads where... There's like a bad angel and a good angel. They're both like mythic rares that are expensive. But if I play them both, the cards on the back form this like gigantic Eldrazi angel. I'm like, what is going on oh here? I did want to God. play that on you so bad. It's like a 12, 19, Annihilator, 6, you know, invincible, invincible, first strike, double strike, no strike, flying strike thing. But... <laughs> <laughs> that would be fun to play. Fucking Annihilator is the worst fucking keyword they've ever put into Magic. I agree. I agree. You're hit with Annihilator, like... Oh, yeah, yeah. Just it's not just difficult quit. to get a dozen mana, like, before turn 12. It is not hard to do that. If you want to build your deck to utilize Eldrazi, it's really easy to drop something that huge by, like, turn, like, five or six. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of cards that can sneak attack, like an Emrakul in with his Annihilator 6. And even if you sacrifice him right away, if he does Annihilate 6 on you, sacrifice 6 permanents, you're out of the game. You can't come back from that. Yeah, that's rough. That's so, rough. That's, that's rough. That's so rough. Anyways, good banter section. You know, it's weird. It's like becoming part of the culture of the show that the banter section, like, adds a mini section completely organically onto yeah, it. Yeah, I know, right? Yeah. Well, there's usually we stumble onto like one thing that we really, really somehow want to talk about for a long ass time. <laughs> I know, and it just happens, and I hope listeners okay. I'm surprised it wasn't the Matrix trailer, honestly. Yeah, me too, but I don't know. I'm sure we'll we'll discuss that more long. Well, I mean, I, I just I think it's asinine to jump to too many conclusions based off a single fucking reveal trailer. Like it's Yeah. No need to sit here for an hour talking about a two minute trailer. No, no. But what we should talk about is, you know, 
ravagery in video game retro markets. So, uh, you know, I guess I'll lead us into this one, which is a video game variety show. And uh, this one is, uh, well, I actually lost my show notes. They're not in front of me. <laughs> Moby, Moby. It's uh, Mario 64 and Conspiracy Bowser. That's what I've got. I've got my notes up now. So this is a little bit of a creative segment, listener, in that to really get the most out of this, you're going to have to watch a YouTube video that uh, we're going to post in the show notes. Um, it's big news. I've seen a lot of YouTubers on video games that I've watched that are talking about this. Um, and so, Leland, if I may, I kind of want to begin with a, a synopsis, a summary of what is accused of, of going on. So this was actually started by me hearing organically through my news feed, which is, you know, stuff I like, geek stuff, that a number of video games recently, sealed retro video games, have sold for obscene amounts. There was like a Mario 64 seal that sold for $1.5 million. They were like, a few years ago, this something like that would be 80 k Like, the inflation is insane. You know, there was like a Zelda for the NES that went for like, I think it was 870k or something like that. Like insane amounts. And YouTube with its spying algorithms suddenly suggested this video from a guy named Carl. Carl with a K. Yopst. J-O-B-S-T. So you can, I guess look him up right now. You know, he does movies on kind of internet culture and, and uh, conspiracies and, and things like that. And he basically made this really well. It's like 57 minute long YouTube video about a conspiracy that he's put together that's going on. The conspiracy involves what's called Wada Games, which is a company that reviews video games um, for their condition and, you know, puts them in a case very similar to VGA. And then there is Heritage Auctions, which only sells Retro video games that comes from Wata games. Like, they don't sell others. And the conspiracy is that Wata and Heritage are in collusion to rapidly inflate the cost of video games. So what they'll do is they'll actually have one of their own owners or members of their board, whether it's just themselves occasionally or through, like, a holdings company, um buy their own video games back at the auction at an extreme price. And when they do that with a number of video games, that increases the price for all the video games. It creates a bubble. And then they can resell those video games for a lot more than they purchased them for. Don't forget, it's like double dipping. They have the game. They sell it to themselves. It's now at an inflated price. They sell it again to a real collector. They're making huge profits, hundreds of thousands of dollars per game. It's nuts. And not only that, but the guy behind it, I think his name is Jim Halpern. He was actually indicted, and and I think he did he did actually go to prison for the exact same scheme in the 1980s, but using coins. He did the same thing. He made a shell company to review coins. They made coins, you know, this certain amount. Coins started to sell very high at auctions. Inflated the whole collector's coin industry. He made a ton of money, and then the SEC went after him. It's like, you know, this is fraud. This is insider trading, you know, of sorts. And he's doing it all again with video games. And honestly, if you watch it, listener, like I said, it's 57 minutes. It's a very good 57 minutes. I think it's pretty damning, to be quite honest. Um, Leland, I know you've watched it once. You're watching it a second time. 
I, there's a lot of details in there, but but do you think Carl's logic was sound for the most part? Yeah, I think the video is very well put together. Um, I mean, he lays it out very, uh, very, very plainly. I mean, it, honestly, it's a pretty plain situation. Like, it's not like what is, you know, uh, I, I guess we say allegedly happening. Although, like you say, the video is pretty convincing. Uh, the evidence that he's uncovered. Uh, but what's laid out there, like, it's not rocket science what's happening. It's just, it's speculation. I mean, speculation happens all the fucking time, right? Uh, even with, like, a, a, a new console drops. People buy half a dozen of them for, to resell. But, of course, in that, in the, I guess the difference is in those ins- instances, those people buying six PS5s are not the ones that are also inflating the price of the resale of those PS5s. Yeah. So while both sides of it are scummy as fuck to do both things, you're just like, you're, you're one dirty motherfucker. Really? Like, <laughs> Oh yeah. I mean, there's a bunch of things that go into that. It's scary. Even just for, um, someone, you know, like myself, now, I have a few. I'm looking at some of them right now are within view. I have a few retro video games that I bought purposefully that are factory sealed for investment purposes. But I don't want to send them out to some shell company that's a few years old that apparently, according to the video as well, like how they rate games is across the board. Like there's certain games that have come in with like rip seals everywhere, dense, and they're given like a 9.5. That's like... You can't do that. That's a waste of money. But people pay. Someone like me would pay to mail those out, have them graded and sent back. And right. and that's not fair. I mean, one of the things it brought up, though, too, was this fact that, like, you know, people will pay. It's almost like, OK, I got a bad grade. Well, uh, I'll pay you again to, you know, take another look at it. They take another look, give it a few points higher. OK, not bad. Not bad. But uh, I'm going to send it back again. And uh have you take another look, a third look, and suddenly it's a few more points higher. And it's really like mafioso level stuff going on there from the sounds of it. Yeah, well, especially when like uh, the difference between a 9.5 and a 9.7 could be hundreds of thousands of dollars. Right. Anytime something gets appraised, it's always based off of some type of market value. So again, the, the to the core issue is the market itself is being manipulated. Therefore, the value is also being manipulated in these two companies favor totally totally and you know it's creating you know hyperinflation that i think can't help but lead to uh, a crash now i mean the people who are going to be affected by the crash let's be honest are going to be very rich people i mean these people whether or not they bought mario 64 for 1.5 million or hundred and fifty thousand dollars, most of the world doesn't have the money to just buy an old 1996 game cartridge for $150,000 to sit on their shelf. Right. But, you know, I, I wonder, I wonder if it somehow affects someone like me, good or, or bad. I mean, I don't have any games of that caliber, but I have some. I mean, you know, is it a good time to dump my Operation Rainfall? It's it's interesting. So Operation Rainfall is Xenoblade Chronicles Last Story and Pandora's Tower for Nintendo Wii. They were all brought in um, in a write-in campaign to Nintendo like 12 years ago. Um, one of the last physical write-in campaigns that were done. And I've thrown the, the three of them up on Facebook Marketplace for like $260. And 
no one was going for them. And suddenly, like, around the time this documentary came out, I had, like, a bunch of people like, hey, hey, is this still available? Is this still available? And I'm like, no, it's not, until I figure out the proper evaluation <laughs> of my goods. Right. Thank you, young sir. But, uh, right. right? It's like, is is now the time to, to sell? Like, are things high for that? I mean, I own playable versions of all those games. The, the sealed copies are solely for selling. So, um, you know, is it time for a guy like me to jump on this wave? I don't know. I'm debating that. Yeah, you know what? It all just kind of reminds me of the, the, the way similar things go with cryptocurrencies. You know, a new cryptocurrency pops up fucking daily, it seems, that someone in some t- with some type of massive audience talks about it and jacks up its value as people flock to it because people are, you know, sheep and <laughs> you follow yeah. someone with like a $10 million social media following, then like that, that that's influence. Like there is a reason that the term influencer became a thing, right? Like people are influenced by celebrities very easily. Uh, it's just incredibly easy for something like that to happen and for somebody to purposefully take advantage of it. Obviously not every case uh, that that something like that occurs, there's there's a, a, a malevolent or, or a, 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 a you know a, a malintent behind pr- the the inadvertent promotion of something, right? Like it's just so easy to it's so easy to happen. So what? Who goes after them then? You know, I think it's actually has to be those same high class investors that are the only ones that could be screwed over by this. I mean, if these same investors simply didn't go to heritage auctions and tried to find alternative ways, I mean, get creative, hire agents to go to the flea markets where many of these sealed games are sourced. You know, all these famous stories of this 80 year old grandma having a sealed copy of Chrono Trigger in her attic that was for her grandson who's gone now and she's like oh I guess this is worth seven dollars and fifty cents and you know that's how a lot of these things are found you know maybe it's send people to go to flea markets or just use different auction houses maybe it's boycotting I think you could you could arrange a boycott of this Wada Games I mean I wonder one thing I should have looked at which is a bonehead move on my part is what happened to VGA. VGA was the original doing the same thing. So how did Wada knock them out? Now I know the video from YouTube says that uh the Wada people bought out a number of the smaller rating companies, which is another part of the conspiracy, but did they buy out VGA? I mean VGA is pretty big. I just didn't look into that. Okay, so if you mailed in something to Wada what are the chances that your game would end up on Heritage Auction site? I think that would literally, this is how deep the conspiracy goes, I think that would matter on what their board of directors thought of that game. Like, right now they're going for the low-hanging fruit. Everybody knows the original Zelda, orig, uh, original Legend of Zelda. Everybody knows Mario 64. Everybody knows Chrono Trigger. GoldenEye was another one. They're going for the big fish, the, the well-known games. You know, the games I have, some of them are, are quite valuable, like Soldier Blade for uh, Graphic 16 That's my most valuable game of all that I have. But nobody really knows who that is when I say that on the podcast. You'd be surprised if one listener knew. I think they're going after the big, well-known stuff. Uh, you know, if I had something like, say, an original first-run edition of Final Fantasy VII for PlayStation Sealed, I would be very interested in what Wada would say about that. Mm-hmm. But 
I think in general it has to be very well known games. And it seems like they target them. It's like Jim Halpern or one of these people just types up his internet and it's like, okay, you know, what game is trending right now? Oh, you know, it's it's Mario, you know, sealed Mario Sunshines for GameCube. Possible, because GameCube actually is becoming huge in the retro world, but it's like and he picks it and he starts to buy a bunch of those sealed you know mario sunshines gets them rated by wada buys them for quadruple octuple their value on heritage and off he goes i mean like you said it's a very simple racket yeah yeah but i mean like he's got to buy these games from the people that find them in the little flea markets at a much reduced price to then turn them around so if you had sent a game in to wada it gets uh, it gets appraised. You pay your twenty percent to them based on the value they want to put it. They 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 give you. You then send it to Heritage, uh, unknowing that the two of them are connected. Again, the, the Heritage is the site being that has been uh, I think founded. This the video says in nineteen seventy six. So a very well established auction house, right? So you put it there, and then somebody buys it at the appraised value. So is that somebody going to be Jim? <laughs> over a lot of like yeah yeah i i mean honestly it will be because i actually i was re-watching the documentary again i had forgotten some details and they show uh i think it was actually legend of zelda no it was um super mario ness super mario brothers ness they brought it to pawn stars a guy from like heritage and he's like oh you know i think it's worth eighty thousand dollars and um they bring in as one of their experts for Pawn Stars, the guy who runs Wada Games. And he's like, yes, it's worth yeah. $80,000. And then somehow there's right. a receipt that it's worth $80,000 on the nose. So, right. yeah, they're, they're, they're gaming it. You know, a guy like me that sent something in, I honestly don't know. Um, I didn't know the pricing structure. Like, it concerns me. I would not want to send send in a game and find out it's worth ten grand. I have to suddenly, I'm on the hook, two grand. For a wet appraisal, I figured I was gonna pay him like a flat fee of like a hundred bucks. So maybe I got that wrong. Well, maybe I misremembered it too. But yeah, I th- I thought it was Heritage that charges the twenty percent off the sale price, and so Heritage is getting a cut of these bigger games that are selling. These more. Valuable. Oh, I guess that makes a lot more sense. But okay, yeah, I guess that makes more sense. Certainly VGA didn't operate under that 20% model because I looked into getting one of my Operation Rainfall games graded by VGA seriously many years ago, and it was a flat rate at the time. Hmm, Okay. You know, um, Leland, I've never asked this of you that I can remember. Um, Do you currently have any sealed video games for investment purposes or that just happen to be left on your shelf sealed and might be worth something? No, no, I never... I never leave anything sealed. Board games, video games. Every, as soon as I get them, I open them, even if they they're unplayed. Like to this date, there no, I never have anything sealed on my shelves. So, so you don't dabble, as it's called. You don't dabble. <laughs> I do not dabble. No. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I I'm interested in seeing where the industry goes. You know, in general, um, most of the games that I bought for investment purposes are actually not sealed, but you know, the market has become flooded more and more particularly Nintendo 64, but other cartridge markets with Chinese knockoffs. 
there's some factory or ease somewhere in China that are able to pump out old or retro N64 game knockoffs. They're very clear, easy to spot. They all sell for like $30 flat on eBay. And, you know, you'll, you'll see like Clay Fighter Sculptor's Cut, the rarest ever game. There'll be like 133 available for $30. And you're like, yeah, chances right. are that's not authentic. <laughs> you know, in mint condition. Yeah. But, you know, it's it's being more and more difficult to sell those things. You know, the guy who I sold, he was actually a U.S. Marine in California. The guy I sold my copy of Clay Fighter Sculptor's Cut, which is the, remains to the day the single best condition Sculptor's Cut um, I've ever seen. He tried to flip it on eBay. I should, I think I have it under watch. He tried to flip it for double the amount. I sold it to him for $1,000 U.S., you know, no, no box or manual or anything. He's trying to flip it for 2000, but he had to unscrew the whole thing and like have pictures showing the original chip and some serial number and shit like that. It's getting harder and harder to kind of sell this stuff, which maybe is a good oh, thing. Wow. Cause it'll get, I don't know if that'll get people like heritage out of the mar- market, but at least it won't let them try to sell Chinese knockoffs or something like that. So. Right. Right. Yeah, you are right about the auction house taking the percentage. And apparently they'll also uh, often take a percentage from the um, the seller and the buyer. So the, they're, they are definitely double dipping. But I think that's just how auction houses operate, I guess. Um, I mean, it's, it seems strange, though, that, like you said, like auction house is still the way of getting your goods sold. There are so many other avenues that you can take these days, right? Just the, the yeah. having access to the internet allows you to to find all si- sorts of different corners of different markets to, to sell your wares to. Well, as someone who's done it, I mean, okay, so the issue is eBay is, a, is an easy way to sell. It's, it's an auction house in itself. It's just online. But it similarly takes huge cuts. And, you know, I mean, I held on to Clay Fighter for about, 10 or 12 years and i think by the time of ebay fees and stuff like that the game itself had appreciated a lot but by the time of ebay fees and stuff i think i cleared in taxes cleared like 200 bucks profit i was like all right you know there's my pizza budget for the year good good 12 years work there moby um, right. you know, for the, the star of my collection. And so auction houses, I, you know, I've kind of soured on that. You know, the problem with Facebook marketplace, which if you get a good price, that's great. I mean, you get the price that's paid for, but it's pretty much local. Um, and number two, you just get people lowballing you all the friggin' time. I mean, I've tried to sell and have sold stuff on Facebook marketplace. Thank God. That's where I met Eric Petey, who friend of the show, who was on the show, you know, Eric has bought a bunch of my collection that I wanted to sell. And he's actually a good guy who's not trying to lowball you. He's trying to pay, you know, a fair price. And I give him, because he's probably going to buy more, I give him a discount based on that he buys from me in bulk. But so many guys, you know, it'll be like, yeah, you, you know, the game, you knew this, Leland. You knew Obscure would be worth like $180, like without a manual and everything. And Everybody knew Obscure was, was the game that was going to be worth everything. <laughs> um, and so, you know, you, you would throw Obscure up on Facebook Marketplace, fair price of 180 bucks, and someone will come in and be like, yeah, c- could you do that for 70 or like 50 And it's like, no, I cannot. Like, 
Like, really, like, do you think, like, I need this to afford my next meal or I'm going to starve to death? But that's most of the messages you get. And people don't want to deal with that. That's my point. I don't want to deal with that. I, I don't want to be nickeled and dimed. I want to sell when I post something on Facebook Marketplace. And so I'm putting it at a competitive price that I think is fair, but honestly, a little sacrificial on my end because I don't want to deal with the BS. I want someone to come across it see that this is value still for what I'm posting on it and just don't lowball me. Don't negotiate hard. Look, look up the game online. I'm giving you a fair price. So that's why people don't want to deal with online sometimes. Yeah. I mean, I guess that makes sense. Like you literally just described the, the additional hoops to jump through using that particular Avenue. When you go to an auction house, you have to pay it a certain percentage based on how well your your item does. So I guess every route you go is going to have their own little quirk and quirk uh, that you're going to have to just deal with, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I think so. But I think in the way it's kind of like honest work, honest dollar. So as much as I just slam the whole Facebook thing, if you put the work in, you can get a fair amount for what you're selling. There will be a legitimate good person that comes along who's not a speculator. Again, I'll pump his tires like Eric, who is a legitimate collector because he appreciates the games as an art form, who will offer you a fair price. You just have to get up in the morning and get through the eight people for five days saying, is this available? Will you sell it for one sixth the price until you find that person? So, so that's my whole point. But I think if you put the work in, Facebook Marketplace probably still is the way to go. One step above that, though it's rarer to find someone who's going to jump on it right away, there are Facebook groups of people that buy and sell video games. And you'll get a fair price if you get a hit off one of those groups. The issue is, number one, finding the group. Number two, finding someone within the group that actually wants what you have. Because honestly, a lot of what's posted, you know, people don't want it. Cat, Catman Games, who we add on. Catman Mods. So Catman posted a beautiful um, refurbished uh, green Game Boy Color that he did that came with a, a legitimate copy of Pokemon Yellow um, for I think it was like 280 bucks or something like that. It had like a new screen, all new buttons, capacitors, everything like that. And honestly, like it, it was a great piece of refurbished work, but nobody jumped on that. I even tried, I even posted it on my personal Facebook for him because I was so proud of his work, but nobody jumped on that because in a group like that, video games suddenly become more niche because there's so many consoles out there, so many games. You're in a group of like 500 people. You, you got to get lucky that a, a verified investor is going to want to jump. I, yeah, I, like because you, you're also playing with scope, right? And reach of the yeah. however way you go. And if you're trying to sell to a small pool obviously there's going to be less interest uh generally i suppose yeah i mean a place like heritage auctions has so much reach too right i, I mean i <laughs> assume that's part of the reason that this relationship is so profitable too right like they have right. i mean like carl mentions in this video like the first thing that was sussed immediately was why is heritage auction house like a 40 year company established trusted company making this type of exclusive deal with a company like 
Wada that is literally brand new and has no no history of of appraising these games has has no no experience to stand of or to speak to about and and again it's like in every other field there's always that catch 22 of well how am i going to get experience if nobody wants to give me a chance to get experience because i don't have experience like that's a hurdle that you have to jump through and get over in every type of industry but when you're talking about things like that are going for over a million dollars that's incredibly suspect like i mean that's such a huge red flag immediately for somebody like carl diving into and actually lifting up rocks to see what kind of grubs are hanging out underneath of them from both of these companies and this relationship yeah yeah no no absolutely Absolutely. I, I think actually that's an excellent point that you brought up is Heritage Auctions, which was so prestigious, some new kid on the block, Wada Games, comes along and they make an exclusivity with them. That that doesn't make any sense. I mean, VGA was out there. It would make much more sense to make that exclusive with VGA. But again, this this is all a ploy. The, the reason why I think this isn't even bigger news and why the SEC hasn't clamped down quicker is that they're only targeting a very small slice of rich video game collectors with this scam, which is one of my first points I made in this segment. By nature, the scam is meant to not target the everyday collector like you and I. It's meant to make a massive amount of profits off a fairly small amount of sales. Now, the only exception to that is that Carl Yobes touches on this company it's really more like an app that lets you basically buy shares in ultra valuable sealed video games. Like that's how rich these games are now, right? You can buy shares. So that's where it kind it's of like touches stocks. the everyday folks. Penny stocks, right? You know, you owe ten eight dollar shares in a three thousand dollar sealed well no, not three thousand, like eighty eight thousand dollar supposedly sealed copy of Goldeneye. And so you know, then it's in, quote unquote, your best interest and Heritage's best interest and Wada's best interest to have that sell at a higher amount. The shareholder gets more. I almost want to break into laughter. I mean, I'm literally like grew up with N64 <laughs> and now N64 games I used to just buy off the shelf and see on the shelf. Oh, yeah. Perfectly sealed copy in Zellers of Goldeneye is now $88,000. Like, where the fuck is my DeLorean? Because <laughs> I'm going back to Zellers and making that Canada's number one company. Clearing off their shelves, baby. You know what I was thinking, though, that seems kind of strange to me, that maybe I'm interested to see if you could get your thoughts on, is why is it only the games and not the consoles themselves that are also attracting high dollar values? Like, if you... Is there just, like... Does just, like, the sealed a sealed console just that market doesn't exist compared to sealed versions of, of a game. Uh, like it, it's obviously there's going to be a far greater unit of actual consoles created over the lifetime of that given console versus the amount of copies of, a, of, a, of any particular given game. So no, no one's worried about buying the consoles to play the games on. Is it because the games just don't get played? I guess if you're a collector, you, like you say, you, you you buy it to put it on a shelf and look at it and like to bragging rights basically is what any collector is really going for to speak to other collectors saying, 
well, this is what's in my collection. You got this, this, and that. How come no consoles? Nobody cares about the consoles. Okay, I, I think it's actually a good point that you bring up there. Um, I think partially it has to do with, maybe this sounds vain, but I mean, consoles are kind of hard to store. It's easy to display sealed video games, to seal them up in like an acrylic case, put them on the wall. I've done that, so I can vouch for that. And the game kind of has more, you know, cliche. Like if I say, hey, I've got a, you know, first edition Zelda gold cartridge sealed on my wall, you'd be like, it's cool. And if I was like, well, I've got a original Donkey Kong green translucent N64 sealed console on my wall, you'd be like, all right, bud. Like, it's just, I don't know, it doesn't have the cachet. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. I, honestly. So, I mean, that, that can be my only, uh, that can be my only guess. But uh, I don't know. I don't know. Like I said, that, that that's a good question. I don't know if I have too much more on this. I mean, really what this segment was is I thought it was so incredibly interesting that I wanted to uh, basically prime listener to look this up, to get into this. And so, yeah, that's that's kind of my hope was, you know, that we just interested listener enough to 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 give this a shot. So do you have, do you have anything else to, to add on to the, the topic? No, no, I think uh, I would definitely give, you know, it's it's only an hour long. If, if you're in, if you're interested in the segment at all, you'll you'll enjoy the video. It will be in the show notes, like you mentioned. Uh, definitely. I recommend checking it out. It's incredibly uh, interesting. And yeah, he's got a lot of evidence in the video. It's very, very convincing video. Yeah. And I mean, that that's really at the end of the day. We've never really done this before, but, uh, you know, I really did kind of want to be, you know, build a segment about kind of pushing listener into going to watch something outside of the show. So, uh, listener, if you do it, um, you know, contact us on Facebook, um, you know, after we post this episode or something like that, I'm sure after we post this episode, I'll probably end up posting just the YouTube link a couple days later as in, in case you missed it. And uh, if you ended up watching it. Uh, let us know if you think this is a kind of cool thing. Uh, maybe maybe we'll do it in the future. So, Perfect. Let's move on to the last segment. Another patent-pended hybrid segment you've titled Ask a, Ask a Popcaster. You've titled this. Like you said at the very beginning of the show, we did recently have, not that recently, I guess almost two months ago now, we've, we've hit our four-year anniversary, which occurs at the end of uh, July which of course we no longer release on <laughs> on those days anyway. But again, that ties into talking about the show. Basically, we're just kind of reflecting and, and uh, you know give each other a reach around about how great we've done over the last four years, <laughs> and maybe reflect on how the how the show has changed. Of course, I think the glaring change is Ghost Marty and his passing. Yeah, yeah, and I did. I definitely wanted to uh, to hit on that, and you know, amongst uh, other things. So. Let's let's start with Ghost Marty and let's just kind of like uh, bounce this this back and forth here, because I think that was our, our biggest change. And, you know, I guess let's pull back the curtain as much as we can. Um, when Ghost Marty made a decision to commit suicide, <laughs> did you were you surprised <laughs> oh, by that? <laughs> I don't know. Um. Well, I'm trying to think back because I don't even know how long ago. How long ago was that? Two years now? Has it literally? Has yeah, it really it must have been over been two years. Oh my god! I I think I it wasn't. Has. Su- I wasn't surprised. Um, honestly, his reasoning makes sense. 
he's actually he's actually just finally coming to the the culmination of all this intense yes. effort he's put in for like the last like 18 to two months right 24 months so obviously you and i are both incredibly proud of him and like like you you've you've mentioned before we've talked about this before like he decide he made a decision and he executed it and he put everything he had into executing the decision he made and i mean we could both could, could be more happy for him obviously so his departure and you know <laughs> really pulled back the curtain obviously he's not really dead you've heard his voice before <laughs> despite our seances <laughs> we're not that yeah. good <laughs> <laughs> but but I mean, we will his... uh we'll try to raise your dead i mean we offer no guarantees <laughs> $1,500 cash. We'll do the little sparkly <laughs> yeah. sounds. A flat a flat appraisal fee. We won't even charge you a percentage on what we think your deceased loved one is worth. Just flat <laughs> fee. <laughs> We're heritage seances. <laughs> heritage seance. Been around for four years. <laughs> we got four years yeah. of experience. Four minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways. <His> leaving... <laughs> His leaving changed the format of our show. I mean, we we didn't have any guests on before uh, before Marty left, right? Like that's a huge yeah. part of our show now. I mean, we have guests more on, on more than we don't now. No, we we do, we do, and that was actually almost born out of a moment of panic for myself because so I was quite lazy in the beginning, listener. Um, <laughs> I mean, my <laughs> job basically was to do the episode art. It was Marty that it was actually behind the scenes as producer of the show. Marty would assemble topics. He set up a Google uh, a shared uh, docs where where he would assemble the episodes and everything like that. And when he left, you know, someone had to fill the void. That was me because Leland does the editing. He's amazing, but it's very time consuming. That's all he legitimately should do. Um, but part of me was like, well, well, do we go on? We formed this as three friends. This was all our legitimate passion together. And now there's just two of us. And part of me went, well, okay, well, Leland and I want to continue on, but this shouldn't just be two of us all the time. So what about the concept of a guest? And I said, well, a guest for a segment wouldn't really work. So let's flip this around and we will have guest hosts. And I I had thought that might be a barrier for people that they'd say, oh, that's too much of a commitment. You know, I want to host a whole episode. I've never done anything. But, and some of our guests have had nerves before going in. But I can tell you, listener, like, and I'm not trying to pat ourselves on the back or give us all a universal reach around, despite how much we might deserve it. <laughs> Every... Every single guest we have ever had has loved being on the show. The only difference is how much do they want to come back for a second or third time. And it's it's a lot. And I love our guests. I love our guests to death. And we have a few that we now call Triple Crown guests that have been on three plus times. Uh, we have a few. You know, we've got um, uh, Herman, Mike Herman. We've got, um, you know, uh, Game of Nerds. And... You know, we love those people and we're going to have more that are triple crown in the future. It's it's been a really interesting change, like you said, Leland, to have the guest host. I, I like it. It's a little bit more work, but I like it. And they've all worked out. Yeah, I, I like uh, I like it, too. Um, you do a great job at, at uh, fostering the relationship. Let our guests continue with the show afterwards. I mean, I just have nothing to do with any of them afterwards. So. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I, <laughs> so that's all you. You do a great job of that. And yeah, I do like having differ, uh, different voices on. 
and I do really enjoy how much the guests enjoy themselves too. Obviously, we both want to make the the experience for them as easy as possible. And there really is a lot of a lot of upfront stuff that they need. Like yes, like you say, like you know, like I mean, Mike Herman, his his episodes go on for like two and a half hours. So like, there's it's a it's a commitment. <laughs> it, it is a commitment uh, for our guests, and it, is. it really is appreciated for the people that that don't have a problem with that committing their time. I mean, time, your time is money, people. Your time is valuable. Don't undervalue your own time. And that's something that I do a lot to myself uh, and I need to stop as well. So I'll listen to my own words, but value your own time and thank you for contributing it to ours, to us, to our show. Yeah, you know, and and I say that too. I, I reiterate that because I do, I do keep in touch with our guests. I'm kind of the guy that, you know, follows them because I'm the guy that, you know, stalked them in the first place. And, uh, you know, I, I do appreciate all of you guys. Many of you be, have become friends. You know, we just love having you. And, you know, I say this legitimately and, it, and it's great that the guests will try to put a seed in my ear and say, you know, hey, Moby, you know, I want to discuss this. Any chance of, you know, booking on the show in the next few months? And we honestly have, I wouldn't say a surplus of guests, but if we wanted to do a balance of repeat guests, and a few episodes of you and me per year alone, we could probably do that in perpetuity. But, you know, I'm going to continually look up uh, for new guests to to try to find, to try to get on board. I enjoy doing that. I enjoy meeting people. You know, Leland, you're the better podcaster. Honestly, you're much more professional. You do it outside of this show. You have so much more knowledge than I ever do. But I'm also the extroverted social butterfly. So that's what makes it more easy for me to just <laughs> flitter out there and make cold emails and, and messages and Yeah, absolutely. It's 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 what it's one of the many things that you're that you're great at. Uh and I think that's why both of us work so well together. I think that's why their show is is, is sounds as great as it does. And uh I do think that you and I are obviously I mean, we've known each other for like going on two decades now, so our rapport is, you know, if we didn't have some type of it, we wouldn't have lasted. Our friendship would have lasted as long as it has, despite our condescending controversies. <laughs> yeah, and I want to bring up, there's two things I want. I, I literally had my notes to bring up, so we're going to do it. We don't have to do it in a row. You know, and our condescending controversy was one of those things. I don't even bring that back much anymore because I'm like, what's the point? It ends up being either a love fest or I admit Leland wins. That's the two ways it goes. <laughs> So, <laughs> it's like even though he doesn't prepare i'll like have i'll be like article c subsection a and leland will be like yeah but sonic the hedgehog is blue and i'll be like oh fuck <laughs> like it's over <laughs> it's just facts so, all it takes is facts man it just facts, <laughs> all you need is facts <laughs> facts um but the other thing i want to bring up i mean it, it's interesting because we are we are legitimate friends in real life we've been for more now i think than We've been for friends more than half of our lives, respectively. Yeah. But the fact is, is that doing a show, we're a little bit, just a little bit of exaggerated forms of our own, you know, people who we are in person. And so I kind of wanted to ask you, like, how do you feel, if anything, your personality is different when you're on a podcast, this or the other? Um, one that you do, um, you know, I should throw throw a bone out there for the encourageable party. 
and how have you evolved? How do you feel you've grown as a podcaster since starting this in the summer of 2017? Oh, wow. That's a great question. I, I think that I have leveled out. <laughs> I think that <laughs> exaggeration, like you, like, I mean, look, it's, it's, yes, we're just sitting here talking to each other, but of course, you know, people are also listening. So this is a performance. This is a performative act, right? Yes. Uh, yes. Anytime you put, you, you make any type of content and put it out there, that's, you're being performative. So it's really difficult to not to adopt some, some characteristics or mannerisms while you create that content. I think I have leveled out. I'm not quite as explosive as maybe I, <laughs> I have been in the past, which, I mean, honestly, like, it was where Condescending Controversy was born from, really, like. Mm -hmm. So I think there's a lot of things where you and I, like, don't butt heads as much as we used to, maybe, uh, as yeah. as we've progressed. Maybe our our our, our thinking and our, our what we enjoy have have come much more in sync with maybe just by us talking about things all the time. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. I mean, I think, you know, listener, if you're a fan of the show and haven't listened to the beginning, simply go back to episode one. There's a famous situation <laughs> where Leland and I battle over Matt Smith being Skynet in, uh, you know, Terminator, I think it was Terminator <laughs> 5. And yeah. what I will say, it, it was exaggerated on both ends because I'm more of a bubbly diplomatic type, but... You know, I knew you would get ornery and I'm like, this is ornery performance based Leland. And I'm like, I'm going to be, you know, stubborn performance based Moby. And we have this huge battle over Matt Smith. And years later, I'm like, that that is like the lamest battle of 2017. <laughs> so <stupid>. <laughs> <laughs> Two men battling over a very small supporting character in a movie that sold no tickets. So it's like, why? <laughs> right. Well, I don't know. What was the argument? I, what you thought it was cool, Matt Smith was in the movie, and I thought it was stupid. <laughs> exactly. That's pretty much it. I thought it was cool that Skynet had, you know, a single impersonation of this powerful character, and you're like, no, it's fucking useless. It's Skynet. It's a bunch of machines. It's it's AI. It's not it's not the do it's not Doctor Who. You know, that's not who <laughs> Skynet is meant to be. It's not the second best doctor. Because <laughs> David Tennant will always have a place in my heart. Another thing I felt that has changed for the better, I think it was good to not force all three segments. Do you remember how we used to force all three segments no matter what? Yeah. Yep. It was, it, there are some episodes where like the third, by the time we get to the third segment, like we're just done. We're done. <laughs> and we don't want to talk about anything now. We don't want to be on mic anymore. We just would like the episode to be finished now. <laughs> I would like to be done now. <laughs> Yeah, and you know, it came it came from good intentions, as many things do. I mean, we each came into the podcast kind of with our own niches, me being the movie TV guy, you were the board game guy, you know, Marty was the video game guy, but the fact that we could communicate intelligently on all three topics, but we just simply assumed that we had to have all three as part of the show, but you hit that record button, suddenly it's like three and a half hours three hours, 50 minutes of like raw footage to go right. through. And, you know, I think it was a good idea. Do you remember who decided to drop from three to two? Cause that person's a genius. I don't remember. Oh, wow. What a setup. I imagine it was, <laughs> I imagine it was you after you took over 
putting putting the show notes together. Um, but yeah, I agree though. It was a it was a good call. It was it was the natural progression. I think. Um, I don't even really know what triggered it, or if there was a specific moment or like a light bulb moment. Uh, it seemed more. Looking back on it, it seemed like it's much more gradual. As you know, I guess any long running thing will gradually grow into something different than what it started as. Uh, I suppose unless you were purposefully keeping it exactly the way you first, like its first iteration, things just are, things are just going to change. But it was a good change. It was definitely a good change. It, it, I think it's also maybe contributed to the banter being a little longer. Like like you said, it still feels like we have three <laughs> three segments. Like I guess before we had four segments because with three people bantering. Yeah. It's just inevitably going to make banter a lot longer. You know, but but did it, though? And that's the question. I don't actually know the answer to that. I'd have to go back and listen to the back catalog. But I'm not sure if banter actually was that long. I feel like we actually discussed banter less. It was like, yeah, I saw the Matrix trailer. Yeah, it was good. No, I'm not excited. Okay, next. That's exaggerated. Next, yeah. But we have we have three more segments to get through. Let's let's pick this up. <laughs> right. Exactly. It's like I don't remember banter being that uh big in the beginning days now if it had been my idea to drop the third segment um around the time that marty left and became ghost marty um i think it would be because i saw that as this podcast needs to either evolve because we're going to be different having lost one of our hosts and honestly marty in his favorite marty put a ton of personality into this podcast. That's one of the things I can say. Like he, he really, really had a ton of personality. He had the best humor. He was the producer and he was also the moderator between you and I, when we snipe at each other for everything. (laughs) Right. Right. It's like, well, we can't just do this thing where it's like, you know, Sonic versus Mario. Well, fuck you, Mario. Well, fuck you, Sonic. Well, we're not friends anymore. Click, you know, the best, eight second podcast in the world so something after had to evolve in addition to the guests i mean the guest hosts were the big one but if if i dropped segment three you know i think that's just a, a sign of the times i think that was helpful in a way and this is a segue into something else i wanted to to ask you about but it's also kind of a comment i really feel bad about uh you know the, the board game segment uh with the mm. pandemic and what I wanted to ask you about that, I, I had this written down. Do you have any ill feelings about how the pandemic has handled the board game segment? Are you just like chill and understanding? Do you wish we, you and I did more online? What What are your feelings about where the board game segment's gone with the pandemic? I, I guess it would just be like more chill because honestly, it's it's a it's a direct reflection of my involvement in the hobby itself, like I've really, I don't want to say fallen out of it, but that is kind of what it feels like. Like, I don't know. I think I've said this a number of times on the show. Like, I don't know what new games are coming out. I don't know what the hotness is right now, uh, which is stuff that I was usually kept up on. Cause I would consume a lot of board game content, whether it was uh, via YouTube or interacting with folks on Twitter again, which I'm also, not on nearly as much uh, as as before, which is, I guess it's strange. You think maybe it would be the opposite in something like a pandemic. Everyone's 
Like that's one of the few outlets that a lot of people have uh, when they're, you know, either locked down or whatever may be the case wherever you live. But I mean, we could certainly get in. We could play online stuff if we wanted to pick a game to play a couple times and work in a review. Like we could have put the effort in. And we, not to say that we won't or ever will again, but we, because I mean, we can. But yeah, I don't know. I guess it's like a, it's like a little blase fair. I, I don't know. I don't really know how to describe it. It's kind of now I'm thinking about it though. It kind of makes me a little sad though. Like I really, obviously, I love playing board games and I would love to play more of them. <laughs> I love to play them all the time. I mean, when I was visiting Emma last month, like that's that's all we fucking did. We played so many games of Castles of Burgundy. Such a great game. And it was, it was awesome. It was like, wow, I forgot how great these games are. I'm so glad that you and I, I have someone to play them with. <laughs> well, what, what I want to say, and, you know, put this on the record here, I'm still committed to Crazy About Cardboard. I want Crazy About Cardboard to be a thing and come back. I think it's an essential part of the show. I Personally, I've got like four board games in storage that I really want to play with you, four or five. That, and I'm not even the board gamer, but that's the stuff that I have in storage <laughs> that I want to play with. Right. Um, because I've got a few board games that are like very cheap to buy off eBay that I wonder how good they would be, like War Games, Supremacy. There's also, I think it might be like War in the Desert. Um, the priority one to do, whether we can do this with Emma, I don't know if she she and you would have time to you know have her on as a second time guest um, when she comes out in a few weeks. But uh, Stardew Valley, I mean, I dropped a lot of money. Uh, listener very expensive a used copy of stardew valley the board game but uh i love stardew valley the board game is by far the biggest investment in crazy about cardboard that i've ever done and uh, (laughs) i hope we get the chance to to play it and definitely review that on the podcast so yeah i'm committed to crazy about cardboard making a comeback yeah well that's great i think yeah we we should definitely put in put in that effort i mean i know for sure uh emma would like the three of us will could she would definitely be down to play. I'm not sure about the timing as far as coming onto the show, but gotcha. oh, for sure we should definitely three of us three of us for sure should play Stardew, absolutely. But I also really want to play uh, Evil Dead Two. Yes. So if I recall correctly, the very first episode that we did without Marty was the episode in which I outlined the whole thing with Space Goat Productions and the original mm-hmm. run of Kickstarter run of Evil Dead Two. I'm, pr- I'm pretty sure that was the first one. Sans pretty sure that was true Marty. as well. So I don't know. That would be like a nice kind of like full circle thing because I think I've mentioned before too on the show. Like I, I never unfortunately did not get my copy of Evil Dead Two because it was shipped address to my work and at the time I was laid off because of the pandemic. <laughs> Gosh, off the top of my head, I'm completely blanking on the company um, that picked it up and honored the previous Kickstarter pledges that Space Goat, Sean Burry, the president of Space Goat, thieved from everybody. Upwards of a million dollars he fucking stole from backers. Fuck, man. I want to go back and watch that episode. Yeah, I was proud of that episode. I was proud of putting that together. But Feel free to put it in the show notes if you want. You know, just to give listener a reminder of one of your all-time best best kind of uh, segments. Because you really took control of that segment. We were both super angry because it was one of the few things where we had both sunk in our money on the same thing. Now, very small silver lining. I do have my copy of the game. Everything looks great. I cracked it open. I mean, it's not an investment for me. 
and that uh, also is on the top of the list to play with Leland. I mean, I got Battletech. I remember Battletech. Leland's literally like, Ooh, clicks, yeah. Moby, Battletech. I'm like, Deluxe Ultimate Titanium Plutonium <laughs> Edition. <laughs> I spent all this money. Yeah. And I mean, it's funny because Battletech, so, like the drivers of the mechs, people got to like write in who paid to this certain tier and put whatever driver they wanted. So like one of the mech drivers is a female psychologist who wants to help people become not mentally ill. I'm like, how are you the driver of a battle mech? The other guy put like his six year old (laughs) and four year old kid who are like twin battle mech drivers who I guess pull the levers. It's horrific. (laughs) It's much scarier than like a 40 year old man to have these people as pilots. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Then you get the Uber nerd. It's like Darshan D. Elmos Alpha was a Sky Raider knight from the fifth Legion of Doom. And you're like, this dude has like so much time on his hands to write his own backstory. But it's hilarious just like flipping through those battle mech cards. We got to do that. Oh, yeah. 100%. I'm so down for that. (laughs) Yeah, it's funny. Like, how did I during the pandemic? This is probably true. I probably spent more money on board games than you during the pandemic because i collected like six for the future some at very high costs so yeah i think i i bought one (laughs) (laughs) that's cool yeah i'm trying to i'm trying to think of other questions like how do you think we've evolved generally as a podcast from like episode one to now like what and if you can put your finger on like a best thing or an area we still need to improve I think uh, I think we got a lot better being efficient with our topics. I think we are a lot um, we are less long winded. <laughs> Although this particular episode may not be the best reflection of that, <laughs> but we uh, generally are much more succinct at communicating just exactly what we want to communicate about a given topic. And I think we're getting a lot better at wrapping things up when they are getting a little long in the tooth. Right. Right. You know, and we're not professionals, um, despite our Patreon overflowing with gold doubloons, but we are becoming, we we do have (laughs) uh, more of a professional attitude moving forward. And and I think that's apparent. I did go back about a month ago and listen to episode one. I mean, it it was endearing, like we were trying, but we didn't know what the hell we were doing that episode or the podcast it was kind of like hey hey yeah i'm Moby, i'm marty i'm leland hey we're here matt smith and i was like oh okay <laughs> it's like cringy shit man it's cringy i think we all agree and i did actually the a, bit, a couple days later listen to this episode a second time myself geek is good was kind of the episode where the podcast really got its feet footing i felt I, th- I think we even felt that at the time. I think we made comments once we had heard it after it was edited and posted. We're like, wow, guys, we're actually starting to get a hang of this. Yeah, yeah. I, I do distinctly remember after recording the episode thinking like, wow, that was a really great episode. We're doing it. We're doing it. You're doing it, Peter. You're doing <laughs> yeah. it. <laughs> That's such a good pull. You know, the only bad part about that episode was I kept bringing up my dating apps and you're getting annoyed and you're like, okay, fuck Moby and his dating apps. It's like putting geekage <laughs> stuff on it. Um, but that was oh. the only bad part. 
Uh, other highlights for me, I mean, I really enjoyed being able to do the marketing episode and putting in the uh, writing the two fake commercials. I really enjoyed those. I still have the original sound footage for those commercials on my computer that I, I listen <laughs> nice. to from time to time. Other highlights, having Shannon Parola come on the first time. Of course, Game of Nerds, who I mentioned before. Shannon, the original Triple Crown friend of the show. She really reinforced that the guest thing could work. And that gave me a ton of confidence. Yeah, yeah. Well, she was our first guest. She was our first guest. Yeah, I mean, oh, another highlight for me. I mean, unfortunately, you didn't get to join or I didn't invite you because I was a jerk off. One of the two. But uh, when Brayden Demore Purry invited me to the premiere of Into the Woods, um, that was an yeah. amazing, surreal experience. Because I, I cannot tell you how weird it is to like stand in a circle of actors and directors, like eight people and you're talking, you're like, yeah, hey, it's awesome. How's the film industry? And like 15 minutes later, you're seeing one of them chain the other one up in a dungeon with a gun to his head. And it's like legitimate movie stuff. It, it's weirder than it sounds. Okay. It's weirder than it sounds because I knew it was a movie and I knew they were actors, but they were good actors. Mm -hmm. You know, it was fun to be press there that's what is true like press i remember Braden and everyone else like all the producers and the actors they went in groups to some background and like journalists are all snapping photos there and i'm i'm with them as like press and i'm like oh yeah i guess i should have brought my slr i've got like nine so i'm like standing there people like snapping photos on other either side of me i'm like all right guys good smiles and um then I was given like this <laughs> awesome reclining chair, like fifth row center. And I'm like, it's awesome, Braden. So yeah, I gave, gave him a big hug. Got to meet uh, Steven, my favorite actor that uh, he had in his movie. Ended up FaceTiming Steven. We haven't had him on the show, but uh, it was just good to talk to him about the acting industry. And yeah, so that whole experience was a, a big highlight for me. Yeah, I was really bummed that I uh, wasn't able to make it to that premiere. I still have yet to see the film, which I'm incredibly interested in freaking seeing. How do I see your movie, Brayden? How do I see it? Yeah, I I need, I know it's streaming somewhere, Into the Woods. I'll try to find it for you. There's a few movies named Into the Woods. I know it's out there streaming. If I can find it like on YouTube or whatever uh, streaming service it's on, I'll I'll let you know. I don't know what to say, except, you know, I'm still um, still enjoying it, still enjoying doing the podcast. I still have the same amount of passion that I've had for it uh, uh, since we started four years ago, um, despite the changes. How are you feeling? Oh, yeah. I'm fuck, you know, I love being I love being on the other end of the microphone, um, despite uh, how introverted I generally am. But I feel like I don't know. I mean, obviously like you say the adopting the the personas uh certainly helps me with that and i I've, i'm just so comfortable behind it now um which i really enjoy and yeah like i love producing uh the shows like i i wish i had time to do more shows i would do fucking all the shows <laughs> right but uh yeah no i've the last four years i can't believe it's been four years like it's just you lose it's so easy to lose track of time but in four more years, we're going to be like, wow, it's been eight years. 
it, it is. And you know what? I honestly believe the cast is going to last that long. It's it's not something that uh, is difficult or, or not fun for us to do. I mean, one of the changes throughout the pandemic is I took one of our awesome Yeti's microphones to my place and we've recorded all remotely through the pandemic. And it's actually worked out very, very well. Yeah. But I mean, one thing I, I didn't know if you were going to bring this up on your own because, you know, with Emma, but like podcasting has led you to meet your significant other and i don't know if you want to comment on that all but i mean my goodness you found this amazing person you know who's taught us all about the wonders of capsulon which we hope to eat someday soon (laughs) 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 you're right albie if there's if there's one thing emma has brought to my life it is the introduction of Capsalon, and I can't thank her enough for it, quite honestly. <laughs> so, Emma, I love Capsalon. <laughs> I'm so happy he was clopped by the windmill for you, Emma. Clopfandamola! <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? Even I found a nickname for my, my recent woman, my Upletit, so... <laughs> or something like that so i wouldn't have such a nickname uh, i it's funny though i like i don't i guess i don't really think of podcasting specifically as being a catalyst for that but you're totally are right like it was one significant factor in you know having the social media presence that i that i right. had uh or have i suppose at the time and yeah it was like through those connections it was through um, you know, the, the board game circles that we both uh, run in. And, um, yeah, I mean, shit. Like, Emma is amazing and, like, the best thing <laughs> that has happened to me, right? Like, if there, yeah, fuck. Like, if we, if we ended, if we somehow had to end the show tomorrow knowing that its legacy factors into this knock on wood, long-running relationship an amazing relationship uh despite the distance that i've had with emma i, I mean I, yeah how, how could i ever look back on that and be like wow this was so much time wasted like no like there's that is the furthest thing waste of time is not what this is <laughs> no no it's funny because we joke about it like that but it's not i mean you know one of the things that we've touched on in the segment is, you know, I keep in touch with the past guests. Well, keeping in touch is not like, Hey, Moby. Hey, Mike. Nice day. It's like, I am constantly talking industry specific stuff with all our past guests. And I love it. That's one of the big things that I've got out of the podcast is I have these amazing contacts or guests that I arrange to bring back. And them and I talk about really cool topics all the time. I mean, Eric, Eric Petior's wife have worked effects on virtually every favorite movie I've had in the last 20 years. And that's not an exaggeration since about 2003. And it's the coolest thing to know someone like that and have them on the show. Same with Mike Kerman, amateur actor, but he's got all these amazing opinions. Shannon Parola, she... She actually took from being on our podcast to being someone who is like a guest on lots of very large podcasts all over the United States. And so it's really kind of cool to see how those people have developed as well. You know, even people like my brother to hear his insights on semi-pro gaming. 
Like I knew he was involved in it and I could even tell you what games, but certainly a lot of new information came out when I actually heard what he did. Yeah. Yeah. It was really cool. I, I mean, I could go back through, through all the guys. I mean, um, you know, super geek, AKA Randy, you know, teaching Will Wheaton how to play football in exchange for getting him into that one board game. <laughs> These amazing stories. People wouldn't know otherwise. <laughs> so I guess unless you have something else to add to this this segment, um, I do want to thank Listener for sticking by us for four years. Uh, ultimately, we do it for you. We, we, we joke about Listener singular, and you will always be our listener that we focus on. But we've been able to grow a group of people that listen to us um, consistently. And honestly, this show is for you. It's, it's for you. We enjoy doing it, but we are flattered that anybody, even one person, would listen to us. Absolutely. And yeah, like, yeah, I mean, obviously the listener is, it started as a joke, but it truly is our focus. So uh, I, yeah, I echo everything, you've, all your sentiments. Thank you all for listening. I don't have much else to say. I suppose we could just go right into end of show stuff here. Do it. Our website, ttpopcast.com, where you will find our show notes. Please go watch this YouTube video from Carl. Like, yeah, it's eye-opening. Um, I've actually watched a number of his his videos since you um, sent the video to me, too. Uh, he has an interesting channel. I I really do love watching, like, you know, quote-unquote scandal <laughs> YouTube videos from a variety of uh, of YouTube creators. Um, <laughs> so please, check it out. Uh our show notes, though, for, that's ttpopcast.com. Uh, the ttpopcast on Instagram and uh, Facebook page. Please go tell us what you think of the video once you've watched it, like Moby mentioned uh, before. I'm Leland Steele. I've been Moby. Take care, listener. Thanks, listener. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.